Scotch Stories by Whiskey FM, the soundtrack to scotchwhiskeyauctions.com. I am here at British Laddie with Adam and Alan. Adam, hello. Hello. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do, who you are? Uh, well, where do we start? Um, <laughs> well, yeah, so I'm the head distiller at British Laddie. And I've been working here since uh, well, I started in 2004, me, uh, as a tour guide, and over the years I've managed to climb the tree up to head to Stella. Uh, so my job is basically um, putting the, make sure the right whiskey goes in the bottle, so that's uh, kind of it. There's a few more things in between, but I'm sure we can talk more about that as we, as we go through. Brilliant. And Alan, same Thank question. You. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm the Production and Operations Director Claddy. Um, I've worked here since 2001 and I started as a painter and decorator so um, and I've been involved in every aspect of the process and uh, yeah kind of similar to Adam climbed your way up the, the tree and now uh, in charge of the whole operation here at the distillery. Yeah. Wow so things have changed fairly significantly for you both since you've been here. Pretty much, yeah. It's been uh, a big. Uh, I mean, we essentially look at it as it's almost like a, a book. It's been different chapters along the way. And when we started the, when I started in the distillery in two thousand one, it was really revival. It was bringing the distillery back to life. And you know, then we went into you know pretty much survival, trying to keep the business uh, going and you know surviving year on year, trying to just. Uh, make ends meet and then as we've slowly got established you know we've, we've become a bigger business now and you know it's it's now a new chapter in the business and you know certainly uh, bright futures and uh, you know certainly a lot of a lot of things going on in the distillery at the moment yeah it's exciting um so adam mm -hmm. when did your love of whiskey begin well you know <coughs> growing up in Ireland, uh, so i was yeah, born and raised here and you know, on, on the whiskey island, I didn't really think much about whiskey until the first day I came to Bradley looking for a job. So uh, it was one of those things. I think you literally you kind of take whiskey not for granted, but um, it certainly wasn't as accessible you know, back then. You know, we were kind of growing up as it uh, as it is now, and so you know, I, yeah, I didn't really appreciate what was in those over the years I was growing up here. And I had left school when I was uh, eighteen, went away to university, um, quickly dropped out. So. Over that period, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I realised it wasn't really no questions asked. So, yeah. Thank you. Um, and I came back to to Ireland. I was doing a few kind of jobs, and um, you know, thinking, okay, well, what's my next move going to be? What's my what life going to be about? And while I was trying to figure this out, um, obviously I needed a job, so I managed to get a, a kind of a six month temporary job as a tour guide at the distillery. And the first day I came down and uh, I met with Ella Edgar, who's to run all the offices and kind of where she run the distillery actually. Um, and she took me through to meet Jim. And uh, so Jim McEwen, the kind of master of the distiller, um, and basically sat down and talked with him. And he kind of told me what it was that he expected of me and, and what, uh, you know, what the distillery was about and what was happening. And pretty much by the end of that first day, I met with Mary, who was running the shop, and you know, started to kind of piece together what was actually happening with the story. I was hooked there and then, so it was really, you know, Proclady and Proclady is whiskey to me, it's, it's, they go hand in hand, you think about whiskey, it's, to me it's Proclady, so. Um, and since then, obviously, you know, it's, it's one of these things where the more you know, the more you learn, the more you love, so uh, over the last you know, 15 years, um, yeah, I would say, you know, I've just kind of fallen in love with whiskey and, and what we do at Proclady, and I think there's, there's something particular about what we do here, and the passion that's around the place, and uh, you know, the, the ethos, the philosophy is, is our own, and it's it's about us, and it's about what we do. And there's because we own it, I think we know we you believe deeper, you know, you, you, you go deeper into it. It's not just nine to five. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think for me, I, I love love whiskey. I love what it represents. I love um, you know when you look at the whiskey in a, in a glass. Um, there's a story there. There's a story about the people who made it and about how it's made, and you know the the, the whole story, of the place, you know. Island is a tiny, tiny place in the west coast of Scotland, and the, the reputation that we have for the whiskey we make on this island is phenomenal. So I think it can—it's a really powerful kind of whiskey. So many different ways of looking at it, but um, yeah, it's easy to see why people fall in love with it. Oh, absolutely, and Isla as well. Yeah. And you're both Isla locals. Natives. Yeah, yeah, born and bred. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and did you 
did your whiskey story start when you when you arrived at Brickladdy or did it begin before Alan? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah, before. Uh, so my background is I, I grew up in uh, in Lefroy distillery. My father worked at Lefroy. He was a distiller uh, uh, there at Lefroy, and when uh, while growing up, uh, the distillery was essentially our playground. So we were around the process as, as children and, you know, familiar with the, the smells and, you know, the activity of what was going on in the distillery. And um, that kind of drew me to, you know, kind of coming to the end of my schooling was that I, it, it was something I wanted to do. And I, I was respecting my father and what he'd done and my uncles, they worked in the industry. And I I, I was keen to, to continue that kind of almost that kind of legacy uh, was to get into the whiskey industry I didn't want to leave the island, um, but uh, my parents, I remember my parents saying, well, to leave school, you need to have a job. And uh, that was obviously going to be the first challenge that I faced was getting a job um, with no experience. So I remember asking the, the distillery manager at the time in Lefroy, where uh, I grew up, asking him, you know, what advice he could give me to get in, how would I get into the whiskey industry if um, at the age of 16 with no experience. And his advice was pretty clear cut was that, you know, you need to be a lot older and mature and wiser. Um, so he says, you know, if you come back maybe like 10 years, you know, you would be kind of just about right for a distillery job. And there, was, there wasn't much advice in there, but kind of thought about it. And it was a bit disheartening. Yes. So at that time, that was 1996, and Brookladdy was shot at that time. Uh, our bag was closed. A lot of the distilleries were in kind of reduced production and different things. So I was a bit disheartened with that, but then uh, to get uh, out of school, that was only two years to do. Uh, I took a job in the building industry to learn a trade. As I said, I was a painter and decorator to begin with. So I served my time as painter and decorating on the island with a local tradesman. And um, that got me uh, you know, into employment, but you know, still keen to get into the whisky industry. So I remember when Arbeg opened in 98, uh, tried for a job there, but they brought back a lot of the the guys that were previously employed before the distillery shut down, so there wasn't really a lot of opportunities. So, um, going on a couple of years, I'd, I'd uh, qualified as painter decorator, and then my uh, employer at the time, the work had dried up, so he had no more work for us. I remember him uh, giving a, a notice on the 19th of December, so just before Christmas, he said, I've had to give, he'd give us our wages and a wage packet, and he says, there's your P45. Um, I'm afraid I don't have any more work in the new year. So there wasn't much notice, so a bit disheartening. So as I caught the news, so knew that work was pretty, uh, there wasn't a lot, there was no opportunity in the delivery. So I'd applied for a job in the mainland with somebody I knew to get, uh, to just stay in employment in the new year. So I got the job and was due to start in January 2001 and uh, as that was agreed and I'd, I'd, I'd come at a flat shared all set up with from friends in Glasgow and then my father came home from work one day and he said that he heard that there was some news that Burkhadi was being reopened and Jim McEwen was going to be running it. So this was kind of playing in my mind over the, the Christmas holidays and so I thought, you know, I've got nothing to lose. I'll, take a rundown, I was due to leave January the 10th or something, and it was about January the 6th or the 7th, I took a rundown in the car, came down to the distillery, not knowing, you know, I hadn't phoned Jim or anything, but just took a rundown, and um, just by sheer luck, he was in the yard, so I drove in, stopped, and Jim, I knew Jim for, from uh, many years before, because Jim used to coach us at football when we were kids. Oh, sweet. Yeah, so he was our coach, and I was at school with his daughter, Leslie, so I knew Jim, so it wasn't as if we were strangers. So drove into the yard, and he was there by himself. There was nobody else around, um, and he had literally been given the keys like two days before, and he just came over on the flight, and he was um, just looking around. So he took us in and went up to the office, the same office as Adam was talking about earlier, and um, he didn't even, like, it was... He was trying to find cups and he didn't have milk in and <laughs> make him a cup of tea. So it was literally that was, uh, he just literally like moved in. And yeah. um, so he was just telling me about his plans and, you know, it was all pretty new to him and, you know, his vision of what he was doing, but it was all just kind of rolling off his tongue. And I told him about my situation and said, look, you know, 
really keen to get working in industry, but you know, no experience. Um, I'm about to leave the island. I don't want to do it, but you know, I want to stay here. And he says, "Well, I can't uh, guarantee you you'll be distilling from day one, but I need I'm needing we're needing a team that's going to tidy this place up. With your painting experience, you're you're suited, and if you're still around at the end of that." If you can stack that through, then we'll certainly try and get you trained up as a distiller. So that's essentially when it started. Um, started in 2001. The first five months, the whole team were basically just trying to get the distillery back up and running. We weren't making whiskey, we were restoring a lot of the equipment, painting, cleaning, you know. But we learned so much in that time because it was essentially like almost like building the distillery back up to get it back on its feet. So we learned a lot about it, and then you know, following that, we went straight into learning the process of mashing, distilling, warehousing. So we involved in that, and then we built our own bottling hall in two thousand and two. So yeah, so it's uh, yeah, the, the, as I said before, it's been like a a book. You know, it's almost like an, every chapter has its own story. So. so just thinking about Jim, yeah, him being so associated with Beaumont yeah. for all those years. What was the sense of shock on the island? Was was there a sense of shock? Or? Yeah, I think a little bit. Um, I think Jim, so Jim's situation at that time, so Jim had moved off, so he was manager of Bamor, and then he, went, he took the job as a master blender uh, for Morrison's Bamor. Mm-hmm. And that actually meant that he was living in, in Glasgow uh, with his family, and he was away from Isla, and he was working for uh, Bamor, but mainly at Springburn and the, the blending facilities. I think that was it. He missed Isla, and I think he'd gone to the stage where, they were, like obviously they'd filled his position as distillery manager, so he could essentially go back. But he also seen it as an opportunity because I think I remember him telling us that day in two thousand and one that he often when he came back to Isla that he just seen Brocardi and it was so sad that you know a distillery in Isla that hadn't been operating and it was just sitting there doing nothing and it was just such a missed opportunity and. Um, I think when he was given the opportunity, he kind of jumped at it. And yeah, I think there probably was a bit of shock that he came back and he'd left because he had worked with Bamor for 38 years. Yeah, it's a long time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, putting his Isla hat on and you know, kind of doing something for the Isla community and creating a, a legacy. And I think also from his vision from that day, I remember again something else that we talked about was that he wanted to create a, a, a legacy and actually pass on his experience the next generation and I don't think his previous job allowed him to do that because of the way it was structured whereas if he was doing something here that was taking on young people and passing on that experience and building something up a business around the community um, and essentially that's what what he done yeah so it's um, it was great and I think that was the start of something that um, certainly for Brooklady at that time you know they had certainly a different outlook it wasn't just about um, you know, just purely distilling and trying to get people with the most experience. It was Jim and Duncan had the experience, but and you know they brought in Neil and Budgie who were there before, but they brought in guys that had no experience and were prepared to train them because they were looking at the next generation and mm-hmm. trying to retain the tradition uh, of uh, making whiskey by hand. They they knew that you know to pass on the experience. It's not something you just give somebody in a manual. You know you've got to be working alongside it. So. You know, Adam, myself, and a lot of the team here have had the great fortune of working alongside them for, like, you know, I think uh, at least, well, Jim retired after 15 years, Duncan a few years before. But we had, you know, more than a decade working alongside these guys and gaining the experience, uh, which was phenomenal. But they had that vision right from the get-go. It wasn't as if it was something that came afterwards, but they were looking at taking in people that they could pass on that. So, you know, hopefully we can retain that and pass it on to the next generation. Yeah, that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's about building on these things, things the, the tradition and the things are great in the distillery. And I'm thinking, you know, as we talk about being progressive, um, you think about Jim's decision on that. Yes, he's, you know, Mr. Moore and he's um, worked there is, is, you know, for 38 years, as you say, and then the opportunity to kind of start again but with the freedom and the, the opportunity to do things he believes in and, and like that, promoting young people passing on the, the skills of distillation you know, these are these are amazing things to be able to do and to to work in a company that obviously now we employ 100 people you know to to from what 15 16 years ago yeah years ago, there was nobody here you know uh, so it, it's an incredible thing and that, that's the legacy that's the kind of thing that you absolutely want to build on it definitely and 
obviously your slogan is encapsulates this idea of progress in yeah. in Isla. That's I guess what what you're saying. But how, so how would you? What is the progress that you feel you're making within the whiskey industry? How would you summarize that? Because I know that your your production is very traditional, and the mm. way that you make is very traditional. So what do you try and champion in terms of progress? Well, well I think to, to talk about the tradition of what we do in making whiskey, that yes, I think it's very important that we can retain those traditional skills. So there's no computerization in the process whatsoever, which, uh, as I said, is, is, is really important. So it's people who know how to make whiskey, they understand how the machinery works, they understand that their interaction with barleys and with, uh, with alcohol is, is um, they're learning, they're doing something you know, all the time. It's not just a process that they monitor. A lot of it is kind of rediscovering what is lost. I mean, if you look at the in front of us, there is an Isla Bali, Hochelle Isla Bali, 2011. And that whiskey is about the barley that was raised here. So we're thinking about the provenance of it. We're thinking about what variety it is. You know, we're thinking about a vintage rather than, you know, a blend that's made consistently. We're thinking about these kind of unique moments and snapshots of, of a year's harvest on Isla. I think, you know, that's very progressive. Um, it's still traditional because we're still going back to where things would have been done. You know, distilling would have been okay. Yeah, once you got your harvest, you distilled to preserve the grain. You know, you set up this grain. Um, you know, going back many, many years. But that's a progressive way. We're not doing something where we're just producing a, a consistent um, product that is homogenized, it's the same. That is, you know, we, there's no kind of variation in it. What we're producing in that whiskey there is something that is unique. We can never make that again. But we shouldn't be scared of that. You know, that should be what is, makes that whiskey sing. That, that's the story of that whiskey. And as I say, whiskey is about the stories, it's about the people, it's about these uh, celebrating what's important. So the, the farmers who grew the valley there, um, on the island, you know, the, the names, everything, the details on that whiskey, that's what that whiskey is. I think that's a really progressive thing. And it's something that, um, if, if we lose sight of those things, yeah. if, you lo- if you lose sight of where the whiskey's come from, and, and, and how the, you, what is it you're actually doing? Yeah. You're just producing alcohol. Yeah, as, as whiskey creators, I think we've we have the freedom to be very creative here at Brickladdy, and it's something that we've um, we've always since back in two thousand and one when we started, we were a small independent company with Jim's enthusiasm, with Duncan's enthusiasm. You know, the world was an oyster; we could do anything. You know, almost forming a new well, it was a new new company, but the story existed before and the whiskey produced before. But from two thousand and one, we had a different philosophy looking forward. And it was about, as Adam says, reconnecting with some of the things that the whiskey industry lost. But going forward is is not being frightened to explore. You know, like uh, you know, some would uh, look at it and say, "Well, that's the tradition. This is always this is the way that whiskey's always been made. And we, we need to re- repeat that process to keep consistency. We need to re- respect that legacy." Um, essentially, because of Brickladdy's story, we we almost like kind of started again fresh in two thousand and one. And it allowed us then to have that uh, um, progressive thinking of saying, well, you know, what what if we done, you know, we made uh, two different types of peating level, you know, using two different types of malt, you know, what if we were actually to make three, you know, like actually push the boundaries with the maltsters and see if they could explore to see how high the phenols they can get in the malt. Um, you know, what if if we distilled thing uh, the, the spirit three times like they do in Ireland? What if we distilled it four times? What would happen? You know, there was always this curiosity of exploration of, of what influence is things having in flavour and, and we had the freedom to do that. Nobody was telling us we couldn't. And I think that essentially helps define what progressive means. Um, and we've always, I mean, it is a journey of exploration, you know, like everything we do, whether it's maturation, the distillation, the maturation, the bottling, all the influences that everything that makes Burkhadi or Pocharla or Oaktomore or the botanist is, you know, that um, exploration of, you know, what it all pulls together, what influence each component is having on it. Um, and another side of the progressive things is the way that we run our business. Like we, we've chosen to be, uh, run our business around the Isla community. You know, we've, we've, we've chosen to do that for a reason because we believe in Isla. You know, we're an Isla single mall and we believe that Isla is the place that everything should be done. And, uh, it's challenging and you know but it's it's quite progressive because you know for for decades and even centuries before that the whiskey was distilled here but 
you know, taken off the island and matured in the mainland and bottled in the mainland. Um, so didn't really have a great connection with the, the island, you know, just really purely through distillation. Um, but we believe that, you know, Isla is a special place and, you know, to really make a true Isla single malt, it needs to be, uh, well, we grow the barley here for a start. We distill it here, we mature it here, and we bottle it here. We're using Isla water. So essentially the whole process is done here with Isla, by Isla people. And I think that is, you know, the mindset of that is, is quite progressive. You know, like Adam says, it's quite, it seems quite logic, but it is it's quite progressive because there's not many people do that. And, you know, to change that around, you know, because something that had been happening for decades, if not centuries before, was the, 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 the formula was, you know, distill it on Isla and ship it off. You know, whereas we've decided to do it differently, and it's, it's, if you were to look at the sheer economics of it, it's it's a, m- a lot more expensive. But we see it as adding value to a product because we're essentially doing uh, everything here, but it's all under our control, um, and that adds value to what we do uh, certainly. And it's creating jobs locally. You know, as Adam said, we're over a hundred people now in the business, and that's important for us, giving opportunities to young people like ourselves to start in the industry is very important to us. Supporting the local community, like we have 21 farms growing barley for us, that that market didn't exist 20 years ago, or 17 years ago, it didn't exist. So now, you know, we have these, uh, we've created a market for the farming community in Ireland to, to grow barley and supply the distillery. So I think there's, there's a lot of things, we could probably go on and, and define it progressive with a lot of the things that we do within yeah. our values. But, um, yeah, essentially it is. And that, I think it helps us having that there as progressive. It helps us keep moving forward because we're never done exploring, you know, what what if, you know, what, what else could we do? What can we do in this distillery, you know, that um, will, you know, explore flavour um, and, you know, the different things that we can do within, in the, in the production of making whiskey what, and gin, you know, what can we do to, to explore flavour? Um, and you know, you only have to walk through our warehouses and the variations of different types of wood we have. It's phenomenal. It's, it, I mean, it's it goes back years and years. But I mean, it's something that it's not just it's not just a marketing ploy. I mean, this is something that we've got over eighty thousand casks now in the warehouse. But I mean, how many different types of wood? There's. Um, but I need to add another count. <laughs> we just got some uh, some really nice Italian casks in um, last week. So we'd be around about three hundred different. From my experience, initially, I think um, when we started our journey in in the very beginning, and one of the unusual things we were doing was trying to reconnect with the the, the fundamentally the, the main ingredient, the barley, and actually understand what influence the barley was having on the whiskey we produced. And you know, with Jim working with Bamore for years and uh, Duncan who'd worked with Burkhadi before it closed down. To them through their um, time they experienced a lot of change in the industry because you know as production levels rose you know basically barley became almost like well it became pretty simple as a commodity where it was just bought um, for the cheapest price but also seeking highest yield you know highest value in terms of yield and that was really what barley meant to distillers 
and with Mark and Simon, who were a couple of the founders of the the and and got the the shareholders together to buy the distillery, they were previously working as wine merchants. They were selling wine, and they had their experience and passion had come from you know fine wines. And coming into the the whiskey industry, you know this kind of disconnect with you know what. What, what does uh, what influences the barley having and the varieties and as a wooden wine uh, with grapes what is the barley and you know and the the truth was at that time it was well we can get optic or we can get optic you know and that's the types of bar- barley that are available and um, we where it comes from. yeah that's it and, and where does it come from well we buy it from the Maltons but where do they buy it from we yes. don't know yes uh, so that was kind of questions so I think instantly like to reconnect with the um the ingredients we had to then set out and actually um understand to get provenance to work out where the barley comes from and what options are there what varieties can we get access to and what influence will they have in the whiskey that we produce so we set out to try and do that but it wasn't straightforward it wasn't just like a case of right okay this is the plan and this is who these are the people to speak to speaking to the maltsters you know they were very much you know built a, a, an industry around you know, dealing with, they were dealing with the, the farmers buying the grain, converting it into malt. So they were buying barley, converting it into malt and selling it to the distillers. And essentially didn't really want the distillers talking to the farmers. So, but we've got, we you know, it took time, but we built up a good relationship with Bairds who do our maltings and also locally here, you know, within the supply chain with the farmers uh, to work with them because the farmers here in Isla weren't supplying Baird's Maltons in the past, so this was all new. So creating supply chain in Isla was all new um, and wasn't really going to impact on any of Baird's suppliers. But through time, Baird's have then worked with us to then open up avenues of certain growers that they work with to get, uh, you know, for us to allow to work with the, the growers and, you know, create uh, the opportunity for us to buy different varieties of barley or uh, access to um, different uh, trials that we've been working on, you know, which we can come on to in a minute. But initially for us to set, set all this up was a challenge. Now, we were very, very excited about it internally here at the distillery. Um, a bit sceptical to begin with, you know, like, you know, you know, we were buying barley from Orkney and, you know, came in and it was like chicken feed and you're like, <laughs> what is, you know, what are we supposed to do with this? in the distillery and it was, you know, creating havoc in the dis- in the mash tun and stuff. Um, really difficult to work with. So a bit sceptical, but at the same time excited because we we're doing something new and it felt like it was more meaningful, you know, because you were seeing that local farmers were growing barley for the distillery and even the farmers that were growing in the Scottish mainland were, you know, doing something different. So it wasn't just the same malt that we were working with. And I remember, like, for us, like, in the in the early days, we used to like we would be distilling and tr- maintaining the distillery, but we would be sent out to you know markets because uh, there would be whiskey fairs on, and we'd be sent out you know weekends and stuff to to go and promote the products and and a lot of the time we were talking about what we were currently doing at the distillery, albeit we, this wasn't the whiskey we were selling because it had just been getting made, yeah. so we were selling whiskey that had been made in the nineteen nineties or nineteen eighties, but we were talking about like what we're currently doing and our beliefs, and. Essentially, I think there was a bit of resistance around like the industry because they were like, you know, what are you talking about? Like, you know, like, bar, like, what, like you know, it's all about the cask, you know, and like, yeah. you know, it's all about age. We we're like, no, but the barley, you know, like we've experienced it. We've distilled like different types of barley and we can taste the difference and explain. And I think to people in the industry, uh, you know, that we got to know and people, you know, that even consumers were a bit, you know, and it was trying to change that mindset because people had been educated for so long about the heavy influence of the cask and the heavy influence of age. But, you know, nobody had talked about barley. No, it was never talked about. So I think this was something that, you know, we, we felt there was a bit of resistance. And through time, you know, it's taken time for us to obviously lay down that stock, mature it, and then select it when we feel it's ready and bring it to the market. And now we have living proof. We have it in bottle form that people can taste. Yeah. And it's so much easier to tell that story and people buy into it now and they believe in terroir, they believe in the influence of what the barley's having. But I think that was, for me, is probably the standout resistance that we've had. We were 
we often kind of thought we were like the black sheep, you know, because yes. we were we were banging this drum that nobody else believed in. And, you know, now I think, you know, more people, not saying everybody does, because there's still a bit of resistance around that, certainly with some of the bigger guys. But, you know, certainly I think there's more people buying into the concept of of, of terroir and the influence. Mm-hmm. That. You know, you can get barley from, you know, all over, yeah. which is really mm-hmm. exciting then to see what sort of flavours you can be working with and bringing Yeah, out. and I think, you know, look, for us is, um, you know, looking at the... The varieties of barley that are available. There's there's certain uh, uh, recommended varieties that are you know used by the industry, which are interesting and we use them. Um, but also is, uh, to try and kind of break away, not you know fully you know to to break away from it. You know we still we'll still use the recommended because that, that's these varieties are current and you know it helps with the farmers you know to uh, with the agronomic yields you know they need to produce you know so that they can still make it viable to grow barley. But also breaking away to some of the heritage varieties like the beer barley that Adam referred to that we've been working with now. We're the only distillery now that is distilling beer barley. And it's probably one of the original varieties of barley that was used in the UK for distilling and brewing back in, since they dot, you know, 15th, 16th century, they were used in uh, beer barley. It's believed that it was the Anglo-Saxons that brought it to the UK. And the... You know, for that variety of barley still to be used today in production is is amazing. But you know, the the difference that has in flavour now it's it's very bad, uh, poor yielding. You know, it's 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 low yielding, um, and if you're surely to judge it on that, you wouldn't use it. You know, if you were to yield, uh, judge it on the the amount of liters of alcohol you get from per ton of malt, you would just say no, it's not, it's it's the, and that's purely why it doesn't get used across the industry because it is so low yielding. But from a flavour perspective, it's so interesting because it's just so unique. It's a totally different flavour profile that you would um, you would expect, you know, from, from a typical whiskey today. And, you know, that makes it so interesting for us. And that's why we continue to, to, to support that. Uh, uh, the growers that grow bar- uh, the beer barley and we create that market for it every year. And it's, you know, as, as much as I said before, it is challenging to work with. The reward comes in the spirit that it creates. It's, it's just uh, so interesting. It's, it, it just, just talking about it now, it strikes me as so obvious in some senses when, when you're describing it, you think, well, of course, yeah. if you're making wine, then of course yeah. you think about the grapes. Yeah. If you're making yeah. clotted cream, then of course you think about where those cows have lived and the effect. Absolutely. You know, the, yeah. the product. Yeah, well, this is it. And, you know, we, we talk, obviously, now about... 50% of our bar, just short of, uh, it's, it's, it's 50% this year actually, but in years gone by, we were just under 50%, but this year we have reached 50% of our barley is grown here on island. Now, the influence that barley has, uh, and more with some of the farms that are coastal, so we try and keep as much of the farms that are growing barley separate. We have some of the smaller farms that don't grow enough for us to keep it separate, to get it malted individually, but the farmers that are growing um, enough, we keep that separate and we dis- we get it malted separately and we distill it separately. So that creates single farm, um, right the single estate right through to you know what we mature in the cask. Um, but it's it's amazing the the influence that Isla has just as a as a as a location for barley growing. You know, not maturation is one side of it, but growing barley again because the plant is growing. In soil that is, you know, if it's coastal, it's you know that salty maritime influence that the you know you have in the in the soil, and then the plant is growing in the season where it's absorbing the rain and the the wind and the and the sea spray, and that stays with the grain right through. And it's you know you can ter- certainly taste it, that kind of briny salty influence coming from the even before it's been in a cask that's matured. You can taste that saltiness of the new make spirit, you know. So. Again, that defines terroir, you know, it defines what, you know, Isla as a region is given to the barley before it's even been influenced by the cask. Um, and, you know, that's what excites us, you know, is, yeah. is, is tasting the, the variances in, in the, the spirit we create. And then after maturation, with all the exploration we do with the casks, the different influences the cask can have. It's just, it's, a lot of people say like, you know, uh, you know, what surprises you, what, you know, what excites you, but like every day we're we're learning new things with our own whiskies in terms of all the spirits that we're creating and 
you can go through the warehouses and actually you know open barrels and you know even something you tasted six months ago you go and taste it again and it's different and you wow you know and it's you know we're we're seeing you know even within the warehouses that we have here you know depending on their location and the height and the humidity in the warehouses what influence that is having on it so i mean it just all starts to build up layers and layers, and layers but it starts off with ingredients and then you know um starts off with their distillation and how we distill it and then the casts we use all these you know that's given influence to the, the the whiskey but you know we can go right back to the beginning we can go back to the soil yeah. you know not just going to say well we distilled it on this day and then we filled it into these barrels and this is the, the barrel's given all this flavor the, the certain amount of time you know we've, we've waited 10 or 12 or 15 whatever years and that defines the whiskey it's an easy way of serving whiskey, and, yeah. and age is a, is a really important factor. Maturation of whiskey is, is, is you know really important, but it doesn't define everything. It doesn't encompass everything. So. Absolutely, and it's very excitingly, you've just popped a dram. Yes. In front of me, but yes. it's been smelling absolutely delicious, and I'm confused. It's now in front of me. What what is it <laughs> that you've presented? So is it Yes, is the Port Charlotte ten uh, year old and. Um, this is a really, really lovely whiskey. So Port Charlotte is a, is a, a kind of style we make it of where we both Rotlandic Port Charlotte and Optimal. The kind of the, the main or the initial kind of ways of thinking about these whiskies are Rotlandic is unpeated, Port Charlotte is heavily peated, and Optimal is just a different beast of heavy yeah. peatedness, super heavy peatedness. Uh, so Port Charlotte is heavily peated, it's um, uh, about 40 parts per million in the malt. And, uh, this is yeah. This is a great expression. This uh, ten years old. So again, this is where we, you know, we're thinking about the, the age that whiskey spent in the casks, um, and it's, it's it's a beautiful expression because when you think of Isla whiskies, you tend to think of kind of the the really heavy peat and that kind of Isla whiskey is one of these things that people either kind of like or don't like. You know, peat they like or don't like it, but. There's so much more detail again, like we've just yeah. been talking about for the last you know, so long. You know, there's, there's so much more detail, so you have to think more about whiskey than just the level of peat or, or the age. So, um, with this whiskey with Port Charlotte, the way we distill it, Brooklady, is to produce a, quite an elegant spirit. It's quite light, it's floral, it's delicate, um, and that was you know the Brooklady's been made for many many years. Um, when we made Port Charlotte, it was to see how that heavily peated. Malt, the malt, um, you know, when it's kind of mashed and fermented, how that goes through the stills, what do we get? Because it's not going to be a kind of medicinal, heavy character that people would associate with the peat whiskey. It's going to be light and fresh and floral. Where does the peat sit in that? And so the Port Charlotte 10 is a, a kind of a great expression of a kind of a different kind of peat. It's not what people associate with the Marmite, you know, you love it or you hate it with that peat smoke. So when he knows that, it's quite fresh, it's floral, it's kind of toffee, um, kind of. Um, Caramel notes coming off, that's really sweet. Um, there's that maritime hint to it as well. Yeah. So you get that yeah. like ozone kind of freshness coming off, and that's yeah. really kind of pouring out. And the peat is, it's there, but it's not, it's not aggressive. It's not oily. It's it's smoky. You know, so it's like a, a barbecue smoke. It's absolutely wonderful. Mm. And if you have a little taste, the first thing you pick up on that, again, it's not the peat. First it's thing, it's, it's the texture. And the texture is it's, it is like. Like silk going across your, your palate, it's, it's incredible. The texture is, is really kind of viscous, it's, it's oily, and again, this is oil that comes from the barley. So, again, that slow distillation, the way we make whiskey, it, we're not rushing anything, we're not forcing anything, we're allowing all these flavors to come through, this texture to come through. And you get this amazing kind of sweet kind of rush across the palate. Um, you get kind of looks of uh, mango, kind of tropical fruit coming through there, and then the smoke kind of wrapped around it all. So that it's not this aggressive, heavily peated island thing. It's a really lovely way of thinking about peated whiskey. It's a really accessible whiskey. Yes. Uh, I, I think. Um, so if you have the people think they don't like peated whiskey, try this. If you still don't like it, then fair enough. You know, but, <laughs> You're giving it a good batch. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So, Pochard has been kind of a, a great way. It's been an inspiration over the last few years where we created it. Um, Pochard was actually the first spirit we made. Uh, back in 2001, so it's always had this kind of really special place of, of uh, you know, it's a rightful place with, with what we do. And yeah, for many years, as we were kind of you know going through the survival, of these chapters in the history of survival, and I think waiting for this whiskey to come online, and then we started bottling it. 
you know, we didn't we used the same kind of glass style, the same shape of bottle as Brocladi, and it was always the peated Brocladi. And as we age it, I mean, you know, here we are at ten years. Um, we've chosen to release it at ten years because you know, when you taste that spirit, the balance is absolutely incredible in that whiskey. And so, you know, that ten years that whiskey is ready is a great expression of a whiskey to, to kind of demonstrate all the things that we're talking about. So we've chosen to release that at ten. We've chosen to kind of actually. Consider Port Charlotte for a moment, not just as a Peter Brocladi, but as this amazing single malt in its own right, as we are discovering. Because 2001, it's not that long ago, you know, so this is a very young uh, kind of whiskey brand that we have here. So we've kind of given kind of new life to Port Charlotte um, and, and kind of really put it in its, its kind of unique position where you know, there's a new glass design, there's, there's new whiskies, uh, new expressions coming out. And Port Charlotte for me just, it just seems to. It just gets better and better. Uh, as, we, as we're distilling it, as we're learning more about it, and learning what casts work, which, uh, which ones don't work as well, there's this amazing period of exploration. And so in front of us, we have a Port Charlotte 10 year old and a Port Charlotte Isle of Bali, and they're kind of like the core products that we have. But interesting, what we'll do alongside that is have these kind of releases where we're going to focus on the cast. So, again, what we're saying is that we can look at all the different aspects of making whiskey here. Um, you know, with the barley varieties or uh, the age or the, um, the cast type that's maturing in. And so we're going to release um, over time these kind of kind of vintage whiskies that have aged in particular types of cast. So you can see that how we kind of, how does Port Charlotte age in Oloroso? How does Port Charlotte age in Osotel? You know, so you can really pull the spirit in different directions. And that's what we would do in the distillery as we learn about a whiskey and how it ages what we want to do. But the great thing is we then put it in a bottle and Everyone can kind of come along and ride with us and, and taste these whiskies as we're exploring. So there's no fixed path for you, which is no, really absolutely exciting. Not. Absolutely, yeah. not. and uh, honestly, for a, for a distillery, it's, it's a great thing to be able to to define your own future. You know, it's not there's not a set recipe, there's not a set formula that we must adhere to. It's about exploration. It's about putting whiskey in a bottle and then in a glass that represents what it is we do and gives us a way of talking about that. People understanding whiskey and that transparency of whiskey. You know, there's nothing we're keeping secret here. Everything is open, everything is there as a, as a point to talk about and discuss. Because ultimately, what we're doing with these whiskies, whether it's with casks or barley or age, is defining, defining its, its character. You know, so, for Charlotte, I think it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful spirit. Um, I, I think people think, you know, again, heavily peated by the whiskey. It's not for me. But again, as I say, try that whiskey, taste that whiskey. The, the balance is incredible. Um, and it, it really was it was done with um, you know as as Ed was it was a great where when we chose to kind of concentrate on Port Charlotte it was okay what will we do first there was no well we must do this we must do that it was let's 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 do what we do let's let's let the, the cast let the whiskey be does and so it was a great thing for me to go through and um, and kind of really kind of reconnect that spirit and think that spirit you know with a, a blank canvas and. You know, we started with a, with a ten-year-old, with a lot of barley, with these cast specials, and like you say, there's no fixed place. We're still going to be exploring. We're still going to be uh, developing it and see what push out goes. I think it's it's a really exciting time for you know, a young whiskey to be able to explore all these different things. So you get freedom from both sort of top end and bottom end in the sense that you're not confined by a big company saying you need to do this and you need to do that, but also you're your consumers and drinkers are used to you playing and yeah. they're happy for you to do yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, I think that was um, the expectation. I think when people, uh, well, sorry, when we were, when the business was sold to Remy Quantrill in 2012, <coughs> um, we remember it fine because for the first 12 years since when we started, uh, you know, we built up this uh, loyal following from a lot of uh People who love whiskey love what we done, you know, because we were uh, progressive and we were releasing lots of interesting whiskey and we were very educational, you know, very much an open book. We built up this loyal following, and we remember it dearly when the the um, the news came out that you know we'd sold the the, the company to, to Remy Quantra. It was like they thought this we sold our soul to the devil, you know. It was like, oh, that's it, it's the end, you know. They're going to change everything they're going to rationalize yeah and they thought you know like that's it they were just going to think and you know having lived through it it wasn't the case and there was some changes happening in our business that we were doing anyway because we had to the there were certain things that we'd done in the early days which was 
all about survival. We were releasing whiskies, you know, you know, and we had uh, become renowned for renowned for you know releasing lots of whiskies and confusing customers and stuff like that. Yeah. And um, we, but at the same time, we done that to survive, and we done it because we could. But all the time, like I said earlier on, we were building something more special. You know, we had a philosophy of you know the influence of the barley, you know, the whiskey that we were laying down, and you know, for us to to essentially build on what we believed in. We had to kind of cut back on some of that. We didn't have the stocks to sustain that anyway, so we couldn't keep releasing lots of sporadic releases. Um, so we we started cutting back on that. But I think a lot of people associated that with being taken over by Remy Contra, and it wasn't the case because we'd already made that decision as a business to do that. Um, but having lived through the acquisition, I, you know, and Adam. You know, has lived through it as well as as well as most of the people who work here. Well, half at least half the people because we've doubled their, our uh, doubled their business since we took over Remy Control in terms of headcount, and um, the having lived through it, we have been given full autonomy. We still control. we we have our own management uh, here at the distillery. We still have our own. Um, we we still make the decisions. It's not. Um, up to anybody in Paris or anyone to make any decisions. We we know this business. That's what they acquired. They believed in what we done. They believe in everything, all the values that we believe in. That's why they acquired us. So they didn't want to change it. But it's taken. A, it took a couple of years for people to you know kind of generally believe that because I think there was a lot of people thinking, well, you know, there's going to be change. They're going to shut the bottling hole. They'll be, yeah. you know, they'll just, you know, it'll all just be about, um, uh, you know, uh, profit and. You know, they're not really going to care about what they're doing and care about, but it, that hasn't been the case. You know, we've certainly you know stayed true to our values. It feels like that. I've been here, you know, all the way, and I think you know we're still very much committed to our values. We've also, you know, as I say, looking at the 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 the, the whiskies that we create now are more meaningful to us and what we do as opposed to you know releasing things that and, and all these whiskies were great. You know, they were great fun. And you know they were you know tasted amazing. There was nothing wrong with whiskey, but they weren't associated with our values in terms of what we generally believe in. Yeah. Just so this is exactly what you've seen before, where you were kind of selling whiskey that has been created before, and we're, we're distilling and, and uh, these things. They as they've come online, that's that's what we wanted to do is change from this kind of survival mode of sporadic kind of releases that were. Incredibly creative, and except that there's some behind the scenes shelves, some amazing things you look back and go, yeah, that, was, that was a great whiskey, you know, Infinity, yeah. or um, you know, it's the, the Red Estelle, Gold Estelle, amazing whiskies. But the for us to understand the, the, the varieties of value we're using and what it is we're trying to achieve, and to kind of lay things down and have a vintage approach, you know, that was always going to come. So there was always going to be that, that, uh, that shift in the way we make, uh, make whiskies. You know? Yeah. That's progress. Things change, exactly. and that's absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, rationalizes things. it makes yeah. it makes it makes sense that we want to focus on barley. Then we can't just release different things where we mix barley and put Charlotte and Octomore together of different vintages. Well, no, we need to focus on a variety of vintage, and, and that would be the story of most whiskey. So I think we're being equally as creative. There's just more of a structure to explain the philosophies that we believe in and are fundamental to making whiskey. Well, if you were to have your desert island track, can't probably say disc for. One of the, like when I first really started getting, listening to music, one of the first albums I bought was uh, Radiohead's OK Computer. And no surprises, that was one of the, the best tracks that I've, you know, I, to this day, you know, you put that on and you just kind of, it takes you way back to when you first started getting into music. So I'll fill that one in. Radiohead is no surprises for, for me. Perfect. And Alan, what about you? What if you were to have your Desert Island track, I can't probably say disc for. Okay, yeah, well, I was thinking it would be something different there, but I could, okay, um, I would, and whether you do this or not, but I was just thinking, because we've been reminiscing about the past, and I was just thinking about our dear friend Duncan McGilbury, who was the distillery manager here, and he retired uh, probably about five years ago, and uh, his health is, is deteriorated, he's not in, in great health now, but Duncan was a, he was such a great mentor to, to me when I was, uh, uh, came to the distillery and I, I learned so much from Duncan and I owe him a lot. But I was just thinking there, he was a great lover of music and his favourite band were the Saw Doctors. Uh, so I think if we could dedicate a track to him, it would be N17 
by the Saw Doctors. And if you were to have a desert island dram, what would it be? Oh, that's a good question. If I was going to have a desert island dram, looking at that wall behind you there, <laughs> yeah. it's just kind yeah. of yeah. 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 I've got to say, like right now, um, the the dram that we're just about to go into taste is the Pochard Isle of Barley, and that is my kind of favourite go-to. But if I was in a desert island, I think it would be quite hot. So I think uh, <laughs> I don't know if the the peated whiskey would blend well with the desert island. So maybe looking for something a bit more lighter. But yeah, I think uh, possibly looking at that wall behind us, I think probably. Um, if I was on a desert island, do I survive the desert island? Do well, I get, do I get rescued? If it's going yeah. to be the last <laughs> dram I have, it could be different. Uh, spoil for choice here. Um, uh, it was it's kind of familiar in my mind at home. We've just released the 1988 vintage, and to me, that's one of those. There's, there's a few um, drams that always stick in your mind from the you know, working here and, and tasting these things. It was a 1970 and a 1973 we released about 10, 15 years ago. Stunning, stunning examples of the And the 80 for me is one that's right up there with that. So I think if, if I'm stranded on yeah. or any other design, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would like to think yeah. that would be the one for me. Yeah, yeah it's, I think something about, you know, really old Perclades just in bourbon. You know, we do so much tasting of, you know, casts with different influences, whether it be sherry, wine, such. But, you know, there's just that classic Perclades, you know, um, anything, to be honest, anything between, yeah, uh, 15, 16, right up to 25, 30-year-old in bourbon, Perclades just, you know, it doesn't get better than that. But, um, yeah, I think if it had to be my last dram, yeah, yes. I would be certainly... I think one of the more memorable drams, as Adam is saying there, is the 1988. Just a couple of years before that, uh, we had the 1986. Mm -hmm. It was in uh, Sherry, and it was just a phenomenal restaurant. Very, very, very much Moorish. You could keep drinking it. It's mm -hmm. um, smooth. But, uh, yeah, I think uh, that would be one of my kind of go-to drams. If I, if, I, if I had a request on a desert island to send in one, yeah, that would be it. That would be it, yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so, so much. And, pleasure. Um, well, yeah, well, thank you. It's been a privilege. It's a pleasure. Always nice to come to Ireland. Yes. <laughs>
by Whiskey FM, the soundtrack to scotchwhiskeyauctions.com. 